Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. This episode of Sound Thoughts on Art is a little different from everything else we've done, for a few reasons. For one, the artwork we're focused on today, a Hieronymus Bosch painting titled Death and the Miser, is the oldest work we've discussed on this show, dating all the way back to the late 1400s. And then there's the fact that the music you're hearing now, which our guest musician recorded in response to this painting, is centuries old, but has never been recorded before. Ever. And unlike our previous episodes, our pairing of musician to art expert didn't require that we make any introductions, because our musician, Peter Shepard Skervid, already knew exactly who at the National Gallery of Art he wanted to work with. They were already friends, and they chose this Bosch painting together. Which brings us to the third reason this episode is special. Our expert voice on this Bosch and early Renaissance painting is none other than Kaywin Feldman, director of the National Gallery of Art. Together, you'll hear Kaywin and Peter make sense of this complicated piece of visual art through spoken history, a little bit of science, and of course, through music. As is so often the case with Bosch's work, there's a lot to unpack in Death and the Miser. Here's Kaywin describing the scene and some details you might miss on first glance. In this scene, we see this very narrow room and immediately you notice that the the man known as the miser is um, seated up in bed Um, his skin is ashen white and he has this a black cap on his head and he's looking towards the door and i like to think of this as a kind of macabre room service where you see a uh, skeleton um, with a shroud peeking around the door with an arrow, which is pointed right at the miser. And so so death's knocking. But then uh, see, uh, kneeling behind the miser on the bed is an angel. And the angel has one hand on the miser's shoulder, so sort of showing that um, the angel is there with real um, influence and is uh, pointing up. And if you 
sort of look up to the the ceiling, you can see there's um, light coming through the window and and, um, there's a crucifix in the window. So the angel is urging the miser to sort of give up his um, commitment to um, money and earthly uh, possessions and to give his soul over to Christ. And uh, and then as a sort of funny moment, there's one of Bosch's little demon critters on top of the bed who is uh, looking over the side um, to watch this scene. And then another Boschian creature who is um, peeking under the bedclothes and handing the miser a bag of money. So he looks a little like the creature from the Black Lagoon. That <laughs> There are lots of different creatures critters in this painting. It's another thing to like about it, that um, some have uh, funny faces and look like, um, you know, gerbils or animals, and others look more like a salamander or a lizard. And um, uh, one looks like a little old man. They're very funny little guys. And uh, so in this, this central part of the scene, it's clear that the miser is at this moment where he can um, go in uh, one of two directions to you know give up his uh, wor- his life, uh, his material possessions, uh, or um, remain uh, committed to um, sin of um, avarice and uh, perhaps usury, and. It's interesting because we did research on this painting using infrared reflectography. And using that technique, we can actually see the underdrawing. And uh, with that, it it shows that originally uh, Bosch painted the miser actually grasping the bag that the little creature offers him. And in the other hand, he held some silver chalices. And so when Bosch originally conceived of the work, the miser had already made his decision to go with worldly possessions. But um, he changed his mind and added that greater ambiguity. And so we don't actually um, know which direction the miser will go. Which which way do you think he's going to go? I do think Bosch had a bit of a pessimistic um, bent to him, so I, I, I'm not feeling too optimistic for the miser. And that is um, further emphasized by the scene at the end of the bed. And so we actually see two different moments in the life of the miser. And at the end of the bed, we see a um, chest which is opened, and, a, and what we think is the miser in younger years wearing this fabulous green sort of cloak and turban. And the miser is um, reaching towards a container filled with coins that one of these little funny creatures with a little hat, just like the one the miser wears on the deathbed, um, is holding. And there's more silver objects in the chest. And, and then the, another funny creature underneath the chest who's offering up a piece of parchment uh, with a wax seal on it, which is probably a um, reference to usury. So it was probably a um, promissory note um, owed to the miser. Uh, But the miser does have a crucifix. Uh, He has rosary beads and a crucifix in his one hand. Um, So there's a sense that, you know, he still um, could go in either direction, but I'm going to go with the pessimistic view. 
there's an odd figure in the very foreground. You see like the, the armor and the lance lying. And then there's like a, there's a lot of pink in this painting. And there's a little sort of almost death figure, but it's got beautiful lacy wings. What figure is that? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, fortunately, we can never quite get into the mind of Bosch. So I think this this uh, fellow wearing a hood and cape with the like sort of butterfly wings is another one of his little demon creatures. And um, it's almost like a little still life there at the very bottom of the painting with the clothing. And then you can see the armor, which is probably tournament armor. So it's, it's a very expensive armor that was made to show off technical skills in the tournament ring and was very, very expensive. So this could be a reference to um, perhaps somebody who was hard on their, on their luck and or somebody who was pawning their armor uh, with the miser, or more likely I think is that it's again a reference to um, vanity and fame and um, the preoccupations of a materialistic life. For Peter, the presence of death wasn't that alarming. You'll notice that the music he chose certainly isn't funerary or mournful. As he tells it, that was a deliberate choice. What do you like about the presence of death? What do I like about the presence of death? Yeah, I mean, uh, you must. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The the presence of death reminds us that we're alive. Um, Death is, if, if you just see it from a musical point of view, music doesn't work without the without dark and light without high and low without life and death without birth and death these are the things which make joy and sorrow equally possible and i think the fabulous thing about a painting like this the the simultaneous good humor and the 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 fate-filled side of the the painting if you like what's fabulous about those is the fact that the recognition it's all around us um, I think one of the things I really love about it is the fact that it refers to a p- specific moment in the Bible, which often gets confused. There's the moment from uh, Thessalonians where the, the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Well, that's what's going on here. But of course, the, in order for the Lord to come as a thief in the night, we need death to do his job for him. And that's what's the, the, if you like, the big joke about this painting, you know, what's actually going on here? And so, you know, and we have a big tradition in music, particularly with the violin, of the dance of death. The, the, right back to the Renaissance, fiddles were the instrument of the devil. It's not just Paganini. It starts way earlier. And, you know, if you look carefully, you'll often see which we call them violin-shaped objects being scraped by skeletons and by death and later by devils. The association of the violin with the devil is a later thing, of course, but in the later Renaissance and the early Baroque period, the violin was was death's instrument. Yeah, although the death, the skeleton coming through the door is pointing an arrow at the miser. Yeah, well, there's a great thing going on there. It's not just pointing an arrow at the miser, but if you, there's a great painterly joke, which is almost like a musical joke, a contrapuntal joke going on there, which is if you look behind the arrow, the shadow of the arrow is coming to the miser quicker. 
So the, if there's a yeah. shadow on the broadcloth curtain there, and it's whizzing towards him. And of course, the really fun thing is that Dennis, death is sinister. So death comes in from the left-hand side of the painting as we look at it. But of course, the miser, if he's having a moment of redemption, which who knows, is looking maybe, or is being encouraged to look up to his right so not to his left to his right with our left and up to his right is an equivalent of the dart of death which is this ray of light coming through the window past the crucifix you know and the angel who is the same face as the angel on st john on st john patmos in bosch's painting is desperately trying to get the miser to look up but the miser is perhaps more interested in doing that little deal with the sack of money being handed to him by the toad-like figure coming from under the curtain so there um, there and there are far more darts and points going on in the painting as well yeah, it is kind of funny that at the same time that there's this sort of eternal battle going on between the angels saying, look up, look up, look up, yeah. <laughs> look up to Christ, uh, the the miser is just transfixed with the image of death coming through the door and his hand, almost as though he's not even paying attention to it, almost as though his hand is on its own behalf <laughs> reaching out to the money. Absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and of course, the big question, of course, is whether the merchant figure by the chest in front is him as well, that these two figures where the merchant is, is, is reaching into the chest where the strange rat who's wearing the same hat as the miser is, is, is checking on a sack of gold coins and a stack of pewter cups. So it's, there's a kind of mirroring thing going on there. Uh, and of course, there is a, there's a figure who is not in the painting who's being hinted at, which I really enjoy, which is that if the miser was not single anymore, if he'd still be married, if the wife was still there, that's her marital chest at the end of the bed. And as opposed to it being filled with her trousseau, it's been filled with his deeds of sale and contracts and his sealing wax and the money and the rat, which of course the rat is a complicated figure because it's it's a symbol of corruption, but also in nearly every um, tradition, it's also the symbol of excess and plenty because rats only come when the harvest is good, all the way from medieval things about um, rats in in German um, kind of medieval jokes and stories, all the way through to the rat as associated with Ganesh in the Hindu tradition. It's the same thing. You know, it's plenty, but it's also excess and corruption, which I find, you know, all of these contradictions in the painting they work in the way that music works. Uh, you know, we can't, we always, in order to make something beautiful, for instance, to make a beautiful radiant line, we need to have roughness alongside it. Otherwise it doesn't work. You know, so at the very, I feel like a very simple level, the painting is playing with that idea. Uh, and there are, I mean, as always with Bosch, there are so many jokes going on with it, you don't even know where to start. Was this painting made for? This painting actually is part of what we call a triptych. So um, originally there would have been a central scene, which unfortunately um, we have lost, and then um, two wings. And our painting is from the interior right wing, and the um, exterior and interior of the uh, left wing are actually unknown, and there are three different panels in um, three different uh, museums that were also part of this triptych. 
and recent research has actually shown that they were all painted on oak panels from the exact same tree, and the tree was felled sometime after 1486. We know from, of course, tring, um, uh, tree ring dating. So um, the triptych like this would have been you know, on an altar or something in a church, and or private devotional space and the a triptych the the wings would have been closed most of the time so um this painting wouldn't actually have been seen very often because it was the interior of the um wing and it was just on sort of special days feast days and what have you uh, when the wings were opened so it it did have a um a liturgical role but unfortunately since we don't have the central panel we don't know exactly what the um, sort of overall theme of uh, the the triptych was we can assume that this panel alone is meant to be a cautionary tale about greed yes it's also though um, it it's part of a series of texts that were published around um, the the first half of the 1400s called Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying. And there were two different um, texts published in Latin. And the purpose of them was to, to teach people how to die well. And um, they included five different stages of death. And in each one, there's a demonic temptation and a kind of angelic inspiration. And so it's sort of a tutorial to teach people how to have both a happy death and salvation. And um, so that's exactly what Bosch is depicting here. So that brings us to the music that this painting inspired for you. Yeah. Did you hear things immediately? Did you get a sense of, of either melody or harmony when you first looked at it, or did it take a while of studying? It doesn't really work like that for me. Um, uh, it, it's more a question of thinking more like uh, what might sing in partnership or in counterpoint with it. And the thing which immediately came to mind is... Okay, so one of the ways nearly all music and all art works is not just the layering you've referred to, which is the, if you like, the vertical layering within a score, for instance, which is there even if you have a single melody line. And the pieces I've chosen, with one exception, are almost entirely just melody lines. But also this works with the way that we deal with ideas of the past. So back to the painting for a moment. So the painting is painted at the end of what in the medieval period we might refer to as the gothic period but what's fascinating about the room that the miser is in is the room he's in is older he's not in a 15th century room he's in an yeah, early medieval right. room so it's looking back now music works like this the whole time if you look at i mean what's amazing actually about the late 1500s in say say if you think about church architecture it was it was a revival of complexity and in the 17th century exactly the same thing happened um at the same moment, the architects such as Christopher Wren or even earlier, Christopher Wren, for instance, was, was, was making what we might call Baroque or classical architecture. At the very same moment, he was building faux medieval buildings. 
literally within yards of each other. So you could go to the Church of St. Mary Aldermary, which he built at the same time as literally 200 metres away. He was building a medi- faux medieval church imitating the style of the 1480s. Now, the reason I'm saying that is the same thing was happening in the music of the mid to late 1600s, which was the inno- there was an evocation of the past going on, or like a um, this... The, the complicated word for it, which is, is we use a lot with, say, with, with the Bible, is typology. The idea that in order to have one idea from one period, you need to echo it in the past and echo it in the future. And so I chose pieces which seem to be playing with that. Two of them have, are Italian, and one of them is an anonymous German piece. And I loved that playing with um, meaning from the past gestures from the past which seemed to be doing what the painting was doing in my mind it's entirely subjective of course and i promise you that if i was to do the same exercise in two months time i'd choose something totally different of course which is which is what the fun is it's interesting to me that you're choosing dances um so you're really picking up on the humor in this picture because i would imagine that if someone if you said hey what would a a song called death and the miser sound like they might choose something really kind of dark and um, slow and ponderous and serious, and you're choosing an Alamond, a Sarabon, those are relatively light uh, pieces yeah. of music. Well, light, of course, well, light is, a, is a loaded word, of course. Um, but yes. of course, uh, it, <laughs> I mean, they the can be the danced to. You can imagine someone stepping sprightly <laughs> to these pieces yeah, of music. It, Every depiction, if you, you go from, it doesn't matter where you go to the church walls in Berlin or in Estonia or in Gothic, Gothic churches in England. This, I'm getting back to this dance of death. Death is always depicted doing this. A century, uh, uh, in a century after Bosch painted this, um, Hans Holbein um, published a series of engravings, Dances of Death, which were again were republished and, and pirated in the eight, in the uh, late 1700s. And we have a whole series of death dancing into the room, meeting a bishop, meeting a, there's a miser in there as well, um, meeting a young couple, and it's always it's always a lot of fun. It always, it's, it's the, in fact, the, it, that's, it, 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 perhaps one is a reason for this, which is that until the 20th century, at least the 19th, the one thing which everybody did on a fairly regular basis was to ride or to dance. These were physical activities which were common to most people's life and in many ways to their daily life. If you think of, you think of the, um, Renaissance Flemish uh, uh, pa- paintings by not the post Bosch generation. Um, that people are depicted. Their life is always depicted around dancing. It's it's one of the ways. To this day, we find our way into life, or most of our significant occasions in life, where weddings or parties. Dancing is one of the ways which we express what we feel about things. So, and of course, music is divided into two things: between song and dance, and the distinction between the two of them is not easy to make, you know, and they they rely on each other to function, which I find very beautiful. Well, I think we like to think of Bosch as a rebel, and I think that's part of his appeal today, but in fact, he really wasn't. I mean, he was inventive and created a new kind of visual vocabulary But it's important to keep in mind that he was um, very popular at the time. He received some significant commissions, 
and um, and he was um, imitated uh, for uh, another you know 7,500 years uh, later, and and so um, he actually was still showing the uh, morality and the church uh, as uh, was uh, the sort of canon of the time, but he did it with a little more of a human focus and uh, wanted us to, uh, you know, see ourselves. And so instead of just showing the sort of standard depiction of a um, scene from the Bible, he um, takes a twist on it. Why does it look so sort of unique and kind of um, some ways spooky, sometimes modernist. Why does it look so different to us? I think that one of the reasons that Bosch is so popular even today is is a few things. One, because he paints using symbols and objects from uh, contemporary life, and they tend to be things that we can still identify today, you know, musical instruments and body parts and bowls and dishes and what have you. And so I think for um, a modern viewer who perhaps might struggle a bit more with paintings with um, that are sort of more uh, strictly uh, liturgical, um, we find an, a window in uh, to his work. And then I think you know, another reason is that Bosch really holds a mirror up to humanity. He's um, showing us the um, humor and foibles of uh, the human condition. And it's uh, wonderful that it's true today as it was when he uh, created the works. And then I think the, you know, another reason is that he was just so incredibly inventive and we 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 sort of stop with astonishment at the uh, configurations, the critters, the creatures, the way he puts his imagery together. And in fact, on um, one of the drawings that he created, he actually wrote on the drawing, poor is the mind that always uses the inventions of others and invents nothing itself. And Basha was truly inventive. Yeah, but the interesting thing, of course, is that, so, the three pieces, one of them is a dance. So, one is a dance, a barabano, which nobody knows quite what it means. It can even be the dance of the bearded people. It's from the, to these two, these two um, northern Italian composers, Giovanni Battista Vitali and Giuseppe Colombi, who were friends. And they both worked in the court of Modena, uh, which... And so they both played in the same ensemble. And so close were they in the 1680s and 90s that they actually both published music, the same music purporting to be each of their own. So they got confused about whose music it was. But the two pieces I chose from them are very different. One is this wild um, D minor barabano, which has got that kind of death dance feel I'm talking about. The, literally, the, the rattling of bones, the thing that Sanson was going to evoke when he wrote his Danse Macabre in the 19th century, which actually also evokes this medieval period as well. Exactly the same, the same thing. You know, the, even the idea of the, what, the relationship in the 19th, that he makes in that piece between the violin and the xylophone, you know, them bones kind of thing. It's exactly Yeah, also that. in a minor key, I think Danse Macabre is in G minor. Absolutely, precisely. And then alongside that... I wanted to choose something, and this is where the the death in life then becomes exciting, which is it's very difficult in all music to tell 
the difference between the music which is sensual and music which is fatal. And there's no different. A saraband is very much full of that. You can play the same Bach saraband, for instance. You can play it many times, and I can be on stage, and I don't know when I'm playing it whether or not I'm going to experience it, if you like, as is being to do with you know, to do with love, to do with physical pleasure, or am I going to experience it in terms of of mortality? And this, the reaching chords of this Giuseppe Colombi saraband, made me just think of that. The possibility there's a moment of truth on the miser's face. His hand, yes, is unsure. But look close at the face, the face which he's been painted in what doctors used to call the facias Hippocrates, the face at the moment before death, when this is waxy quality and there, yeah. there is a Sunken moment eyes. of truth. Exactly. There's a moment of truth of, if you like, almost an in-between, a liminal moment on that man's face. And that's really made, made me immediately think of this saraband by the way this will be the first time any of your list any of you will have heard that saraband it has never been recorded i'm playing that wow. from the manuscript um, i want to keep our listeners up with us by the way a saraband is a dance and it's in triple time it's a it's you know one two three one two three yeah. um and it originated uh, uh, from a spanish dance i think yeah. um, absolutely yes originally done with castanets so yeah i just want to make sure everyone stays with us So this is the first time this has ever been performed or recorded, I should say. Why? As a violinist, we have literally thousands upon thousands of pieces because, of course, all the way through the instrument's history, just like any popular instrument, composers, players have always been composers. They wrote so much music. And I'm somebody who spends my time digging around uh, libraries and archives and for this sheer joy, just like seeing a painting for the first time, of finding a piece of music and hearing it in my head as I read, read it often from a quite, sometimes illegible manuscripts, and realizing that you are making contact with something which has not been heard. And unlike a painting, a piece of music can't be seen, if we can call that that, unless you're a musician, until it's made is brought to life effectively so the musician effectively is in, involved in a bit of necromancy to bring it out you know that that's very <laughs> this is music music revenant you know um it's a very gothic a, way to put that absolutely well you know there is there is I, i'm sure if berlioz had ever seen this painting he'd have loved that too you know think of how the 19th century um gothic artists if i can call goya love the ideas of this and the composers who played with these ideas love the the these dark dark light ideas which fill a painting like this and fill this kind of music as well the other piece though is even more mysterious i'm fascinated perhaps unhealthily fascinated with unattributed music just as much as it wasn't until the generation really after bosch that paint painters started actually signing their work it only really starts of course with um durer running all over europe and um, trying to make sure people didn't you know take money from him by stealing his work the same thing is very true with music we have vast amounts of music sitting in dusty cupboards and storerooms all over the world which are unattributed and this strange allemand which i finished with is this i don't if we use that one last is um from a collection put together by a music copyist 
who we just know as Rost, in the mid-1600s. The piece could actually be the earliest piece I've played in this. It could be for as early as the 1640s. And it's for a detuned violin. It's tuned with different pitches, which means you get a very strange, unearthly timbre to it. It's, and on, that's played on the oldest of the two violins I'm playing on this, a violin from probably about 1560, which is as early as a violin can possibly get. Here's Sonatina for Scordatura Violin by an anonymous composer circa 1670, as played by Peter Shepard Scarvid. What as the director of the gallery, I wonder what you make of the the idea behind this podcast, which is that there's a real link between art that you absorb through your eyes and art that you absorb through your ears. Do you do you buy it? 
I'm a fan of the podcast, and um, I'm excited about the various ideas that that we explore and the um, connection between art and music and architecture. Um, I, it's really more in our contemporary world where we see the art so much more fragmented. And I think in earlier ages, there was sometimes a competition between the arts, but um, they were uh, all sort of recognized, I think, as the interrelationship of them. What about this one? What, what music would you associate with this? This one, I think I would, if I'm going to go for historically correct, I would go with liturgical music uh, provided only by voices and an organ, um, which would have been sort of true of the period. Bosch was a member of a group called the Illustrious Brotherhood of Our Blessed Lady. And it was sort of a, a layman's um, religious group uh, founded around the cathedral. And as part of that, he would have uh, performed in the rituals and been a part of the uh, liturgical music. But it, Bosch has an interesting relationship to music. And while this painting does not include musical instruments, so many of Bosch's paintings actually do. And in these paintings, we see, again, some of his creatures um, performing with a variety of instruments. And, um, you know, we see uh, trumpets and flutes and bagpipes and um, uh, lutes and a harp and other kinds of musical instruments. But they're never actually quite successful in playing music. And um, I like a, a music scholar named Ian Pitaway uh, wrote, in Bosch's hell, music is punished by silence, the impossibility of playing, or reduced to the agony of only one note, or blasted at painful, ear-splitting volume, and dance is diminished to a humiliating mockery. So um, I think Bosch was sort of turning his back on the minstrel plays and the popular music that happened in the streets and on uh, lively festival days and was much more a fan of uh, liturgical music used as part of uh, worship. So um, if I were to think of a contemporary piece of music, I would go with John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. With all of the use of all of our senses, in order to use them, we always rely on other senses in order to make them function. So, th first of all, let's look at the, if we go back to the painting, and I was talking to a group of my young students at the Royal Academy of Music about this a couple of weeks ago. I said, let's just look at the materials in the painting. What do you see? And if you go down the painting for the top, stone, wood, woolen cloth, linen, keep going down, there's some gold cloth. And then there's someone started talking about the feeling of what would it feel like to have your hand on those materials, not just to look at them or to wear them. And it's very much the same with music. So if you take the, the, the way we listen to a piece of music will evoke different, different, if you like, physical sensations. You might evoke um, the 
to say the scratch of a violin bow on a gut string um, has a relationship, for instance, to the feeling, I don't know, I would to quickly leap to it, would be the feeling of your hand on the stiff bristles of a, of a, of a hairbrush, for instance. And in order to hear the music, we need to use these things. It's a lot to do with the fact that as humans, in order to have symbols... We need to put two things together. The Greek word symbolein means to put two things together. In order to appreciate anything, we need another thing. I went out for my um, uh, wedding anniversary meal with my wife last night, and we had a wonderful meal, but part of enjoying the meal is the fact that we have beautiful taste, but also there was candlelight, and there was we were by the river, and so there's the glitter and the sound of the river outside, and people moving around. The taste relies on the other senses. Music relies on the other senses just as much, just as this painting is. This painting is asking us to imagine all kinds of things the creak of the door opening um you know the the, the sound the sound of the money um the the even the the for me the touch of the two different materials there's no cotton in this painting of tools because these people um apart from the angel maybe never encountered cotton um there is there is linen and there's wool it's very likely that this man made his money uh, in wool because the merchant in the merchant in the case is wearing as much expensive cloth as they possibly can um so it's that crossing over between i don't like the word multimedia because it's tautologous media is already plural so um <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to say <laughs> Well, and, and all media, all the way we express ourselves d- relies on this. It's it's why seeing and hear seeing music is so much more effective than just hearing it. And recently, I was in a museum which was closed, and I was working there all day. It's one a very famous museum, and the curator said, "Oh, we have the museum to ourselves. Let's walk around." And after about five minutes, we couldn't do it anymore. It's not interesting without people there. It just isn't. There's no interest for me in looking at a painting unless I have that dialogue with somebody else looking at a painting with me. And that's another thing which links to this. It's a, the, the idea of something shared. So if you like, there's an analogy for me between sh- playing a piece of music to somebody, sharing it with them and hearing how they hear and responding to a piece of art with a piece of music. These are similar crossing points, if you like. And I, that's what I love about about the exercise. You are the first person to bring up the idea, which I think is incredibly convincing, that seeing a musician perform music has a different impact than just hearing the recording. If, if there's ever been an argument of the connection between visual art and music, that has to be it. Absolutely. I mean, you think, I mean, you think how many times in great art you are given the illusion that you're seeing or hearing something that you don't. So I'll give you an, an example of that would be in the film Alexander Nevsky, the Sergei Eisenstein film, there's a great battle on the ice. And for about five minutes before the battle starts, Eisenstein repeatedly shows you the same shot of an amazing black and white shot of clouds and, and the ice, which wasn't ice, of course, because it was shot in, in roaring summer uh, with wax instead of the ice. But anyway, and you keep looking at it, and Prokofiev's music is, 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 is just lumbering beneath the surface. And you start seeing things in the picture, which are not there, just as much as John Williams convinces you there's a shark in the water long before you meet one. It's exactly <laughs> that. It, it's so you true. Know, 
Or oh, oh, the beginning of J, the beginning of JFK. That amazing yeah. uh, tattoo, which means you basically the film Patton, is done. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Of course, absolutely, yeah. yes, absolutely. And every great film composer understands this. Less is more, and it's, so for me, as a my, for I'm I'm passionate about recording, but I'm also passionate about the fact of the amazing thing that happens when we share things. And of course, it's not just seeing; it's the it's the breath of the audience with you. So on Sunday, I was playing some 16, 1600 music in a quite large concert hall here, a very simple piece by Torelli, a solo piece. And the, the, the few hundred people in the hall, while I was playing it, they basically showed me how to play it. I wasn't looking at them, but you, they're all breathing and you get to a silence and a silence experience with 200 people when you're playing is so different because the air in the room, the the darkness, it makes you play in a different way. Even as a musician, it changes the way you play it. They're all the, the shared senses. And so that's why for me, there is the, the relationship between music and painting and music and writing and music and sculpture and whatever is not even something which needs to be justified. It's absolutely vital. Um, because all of these things refer to each other all the time. Um, it's, it's the most natural thing in the world. Thanks so much once again to Peter Shepard Scarvid for joining us. You can learn more about him, Kaywin Feldman, and Hieronymus Bosch, and all of the people in art you meet on this show at the National Gallery of Arts website, nga.gov. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Arts Music Department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Arts Head of Music Programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, be well. <laughs>